Welcome to the Responsible Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm Carol Sanford, your host. Each week, we seek to interview at least one entrepreneur who is changing the world. And now, my new book is out, which tells stories of 15 of these entrepreneurs who are making a major difference on the planet. The book is entitled The Responsible Entrepreneur, Four Game-Changing Archetypes for Founders, Leaders, and Impact Investors. Now, the reason I gave it that subtitle is, first, these people literally are changing the game, but there are four different kinds of endeavors which they're using to do it. One is the founders who create a platform of their own to make a difference. A second is leaders who use someone else's platform to make a difference, usually as an employee, a business leader. An investor who funds these others' platforms and therefore can contribute to making a difference through their work. Now, one way that the founding entrepreneurs innovate is they sometimes come up with a new business structure or a business model so that they can go to market and they can create the sale of a service or a product and they can really make a serious change. Now, what I mean by a serious change is they can actually change a whole industry, they can change a social system, one that's maybe even crippling a community, they can change cultural beliefs and they can even change how we govern. One model that's being used I would like to give an introduction to today, and we have an interview with a young entrepreneur who is using this particular model, is a co-op. Many of you may know about the co-ops that were built in the Basque country of Spain about a decade after World War II in Mondragon. There turns out, though, to be more than one type of co-op. Four of them I have found, and I have been uh, blessed, I guess you'd say, to work in four countries around the world and helping build co-ops. So I want to give you a quick introduction to these before I introduce you to our guest today. The first nature of co-op I'd call a monoculture, and what that means is they all have the same base raw material or make it into the same basic product. So you could get a food co-op which is using all berries, or you could the most popular and well-known version are dairies, who will either just sell raw or processed pasteurized dairy products or sometimes converting them into various kinds of cheeses. These come in producer co-ops and in buyer co-ops, and you may even be a member of one of these. The second I call opportunity co-ops. Now, what I mean by that is a group seizes the opportunity which exists in a particular local community. The Cleveland co-ops are doing this now and picking up a great deal of what they've learned from Mondragon. So they find the primary industries which are in need of some kind of services, and as a result of being able to uh, serve them through a variety of cooperative efforts, they can build a co-op which can even exchange jobs within it. So what they're doing in Cleveland is they are supplying laundry, solar, and a series of other things which help serve the primary institutions that are there, like government, hospitals, and education. Jane Jacobs also talked about another kind of opportunity co-op, which is when you discover that you're importing a whole lot of services into a community, you can instead create substitutes for that and bring them back into the community and make them there. The third kind of co-op is um, what I call a stacked or a guild co-op, and that means that the businesses that are in it can happen at different levels. So if you envision, and this actually happens a great deal in rural areas in the UK and Australia, they will have a piece of land which on it has maybe up to 15 owners which are working at different levels. So they will have 
co-ops where people are taking care of cattle on the land. At the same time, there will be other people who are coming in and removing some of the dirt that becomes mud and able to make bricks out of it. They also may have on that a forestry um, practice where there are people who are raising hives for bees as well as they're logging and maybe even growing berries in a mixed culture. Now, all of this is in one fairly small area. That's why they're four stacked uh, so that you can see that many things are happening at different levels. But the one I really want to talk to you about today and that I'm most excited about and where I have feel like uh, have been most successful in helping communities build them is what I call a value-adding process co-op. The value-adding process co-op is one that thinks from earth to earth, and it determines how it is that it can link together all the people that are in a flow into one cooperative effort rather than having them be scattered and unrelated to one another. So we did in Santa Fe, New Mexico, there was the building of a fooding co-op. And fooding is used because it was making it clear that it was a value-adding process. It started with the people who saved seeds, who uh, managed the seed uh, storage process, who planted, the, that included the farmers as well as the harvesters, those who then harvested the product and converted it into um, a, maybe jam or canned beans. Then there were others who really created it into recipes, including restaurants. There were farmer's markets. Now, if you think about that, that's all a part of a process which is moving from a sourcing kind of process all the way to something that has a lot of value built into it. In Santa Fe, they built a value-adding process co-op along fooding. What we're going to talk about today and who you're going to meet is someone who has done that with the fishing industry. Kip Baratov, whose story is in my book, is a young man who he and his partner, who founded Fish People, were really looking at this idea of what it means to change a social system that is not working so well. So if you think about what's been happening in the fishing industry, it's been declining everywhere. They have the intention of changing how economic development is done around those places where fishing is declining and giving fisher people back the control of their own, uh, their own industry. They have brought together uh, everyone from the boat captain and explaining where in, the, where in the waters this fishing is done, the person who is processing it, canning it, shipping it and distributing it, the people who are inside of Costco, who is one of the buyers, and also others who are trying to help spread the word and build a stronger uh, cohesion and a collaboration around how you build a co-op. Now, they aren't formalizing it as a co-op, but they meet together regularly to collaborate and cooperate along an entire value-adding process. So that's a very different way to think about how a co-op might be built. And I'm very excited to introduce you today to Kip Baratov, who I've gotten to know a lot better over the last year. Uh, he is, as I said, the co-founder of Fish People, the interview that you're going to hear clips of today is one that I did while I was preparing the book, The Responsible Entrepreneur. You will hear an, an answer that Kip gives to several questions I ask, and when we're done, I'll come back and tell you how you can hear more. We're going to start with, if you would, telling us about the business that, you know, where it started, where it kind of is now, and then I'm going to have some specific questions, but let's get people grounded in what it is we're talking about, the name of the business, what it's about, and so forth. Could you do that? Sure. Uh, the name of the company that we're going to talk about today is uh, Fish People. And Fish People sells gourmet 
seafood entrees that are sustainable, healthy, local, um, and convenient. And our whole goal is basically to change, uh, create a different relationship with the sea. Is, is our goal. Um, and uh, we're pretty excited about what we've been up to. And uh, the other found co-founder and I uh, began working on this about 18 months ago. Um, and here we are today uh, in negotiating uh, with some big clubs and uh, some large national chains and uh, trying to make sure that in the demands for our growth that we don't lose our values in the process. It's kind of exciting. <laughs> That's great. Well, back up and talk about the founding. Give us your partner, co-founder's name uh, and how sure. this came about and, you know, a little bit of the history. I mean, like, take just a little bit and carry us through it. Sure. Uh, so my partner's name is Duncan Berry. Uh, and Duncan and I met actually uh, through some uh, mutual business colleagues uh, while I was doing some work for um, an entity on a 30,000 acre ranch in rural Oregon that was looking to uh, potentially leverage their uh, the wool assets. They raise lamb, you know, among other things, but they uh, uh, in a sustainable ranch manner, uh, and they would like to potentially, they were getting, you know, inquiries from Patagonia and other places about potential as a source of supply for American-made sustainable wool. And so I was helping them evaluate whether or not they could aggregate supply across the Pacific Northwest. And I didn't know a lot about apparel at the time. Uh, and Duncan uh, is uh, an individual who, who worked in apparel doing uh, brand, uh, you know, product branded product development for a private label and his own company and ended up being so successful within the uh, organic cotton space, he ended up being uh, brought into Walmart by Lee Scott and the board to reorganize the organic cotton supply chain for Walmart. And uh, from insectiary all the way through to... Um, uh, shirt in the store, you know, so right from the farm up. And I met with him and talked to him about the project, what we were working on. He provided some great guidance for me. And then we just stayed in touch. And then through some visits to his house on the coast, um, we ended up uh, hatching the plan for, uh, for fish people, where Duncan really, after working all over the world uh, in this apparel business that he had, ended up wanting to come back home and to his roots. He grew up on, in Oregon, and he uh, grew up as a commercial fisherman in his, in his late teens. Yeah, and ran the Columbia Bar, and we were looking for a way to kind of give back to Oregon. Both of us were interested in figuring out how to do something that would create economic development in Oregon, while at the same time, you know, contributing to uh, a better and more healthy environment. And uh, we, he was involved in a marine reserve uh, process for the governor, and, and there's a, a section of coast down there where he lives that might become a marine reserve. And in that process, he saw a supply chain that had a you know large number of red flags in, in the seafood supply chain. You know, when the fishers and the and the um, distributors and the primary processors and everybody just not really working very well together and uh, a lot of tough aspects to the seafood business and thought that we might be able to add some value there um, and make, make a difference. And so we started working together and discovering what that was. And after nine months of research together, literally needing everybody in the supply chain, from fishermen to processor, distributor to the logistics to the retailers and interviewing our customers, felt like that creating a branded value-added product of which there aren't really any in the Pacific Northwest 
considering all of our fish, it seems sort of silly that we let our protein get strip mined and go all over the world, but we don't process, uh, do any value-added processing to it here. We just cut it up and, and sell it or sell the whole fish for the most part. Um, and so we felt that we could do some real good economic development work if we brought some of that value-added processing to our region and uh, also focused on buying fish um, in our region uh, and re reward fishermen for sustainable catch behaviors by gear type and all that kind of good stuff. Um, and so I can tell you a little bit about our assessment practices, but at the end of the day, uh, that was what we researched and tried to figure out. And then we got some folks to give us some money, and here we are today. I know one of the things that I read when I'm looking at sustainable fishing as a, an idea is that people say, right now it's not about how we catch it, it's whether there's even enough long term yep. or whether we're fishing the oceans dry, so to speak. Yep. How do you pull that into your equation? Because if you've got to have enough to keep your system working, and yet that is drawing from a limited supply or potentially, how are yeah. you thinking about that and managing that to be really sustainable? So um, it's a good question. It's always a challenge in a business like ours. The first thing you do is when you, in a traditional business, when you think about market potential, you look at the demand side of the equation and you say, well, we have this really big billion-dollar market. And uh, you don't worry about the supply because the assumption is that there's plenty of it. In our case, we had to look at the demand side of the equation, and then we did a supply side analysis of market potential to try and understand, wow, how much, if there's this much demand for it, is there enough supply that's sustainable and healthy and whatnot that can meet it? And to your point about being concerned about the volume of fish stock, there's a pretty healthy debate as to whether or not we will have salmon in the future. And the best, our best approach to that right now, working with some of the scientists that we work that sort of reviewed our practices, is we use what are called um, SAFE terminal fishery um, fish, they're hatchery fish. So they're, they're basically free-range salmon is what we call them, right? They're born in a hatchery, they go out to the ocean, right? These aren't farmed. Um, and then they come back from the ocean, but they go back to the terminal uh, fishery where they were located, right? Um, so they're not technically... Um, uh, there's, a, there's a big distinction between what you call um, you know, a native fish versus a terminal hatchery fish. And our focus is on the SAFE terminal hatchery fish. Um, and there, your um, the challenge will become how you catch those fish so you're not actually also catching the native fish at the same time. Right. Um, and so we, we, we try to monitor, we not try to, we monitor those practices pretty heavily and pay attention and are trying to actually expand and work with um, either native tribes or uh, groups that have interest in developing SAFE, SAFE uh, you know, terminal fisheries, you know, hatchery fisheries, and try to expand that supply, which we think right now is the best. And now there are people out there, I'm sure, that are going to watch this video and say, well, that's not sustainable. And yes, there is an argument that um, even that isn't good enough. Um, and in our opinion as a company, the demand for eating salmon isn't going to go away. Um, and so you can do one of two things is not do anything about the fact that that demand exists and wait for the ocean stocks to be depleted and then people won't eat the fish because there won't be any. Or what we can do is try to satisfy that demand with the best, the best solution that we have today until we get better actual solutions. And that's what we're trying to shine the light on and get right in the middle of. 
um, because it's a really thorny uh, and, and challenging issue for us uh, as humanity, right? This is a, how do we live in concert with nature, right? Because fishing is hunting and gathering. Mm-hmm. It's one of the oldest hunter and gatherer, you know, uh, activities out there that's been going on for millennia. So it's um, it's pretty important um, that we do this the best way that we can, and we hope that we're going to be informed by those smarter than us um, to make sure that we do it right. And, uh, and hopefully we're smart enough to, to listen to the right counsel. So I'm listening through the ears of people who will be listening to you, and I know one of the questioners are going to want to know is, how did you fund this, and what were the principles you used to bring people in that are now have a stake in your business, but also they own part of it? Right. Um, in, a, in a previous company that I helped start, um, one of my partners used to always say that our job is to, is to um, bring together conscience and commerce. And I, and I thought that phrase is a wonderful phrase. And he and I, um, this is an old partner, this isn't Duncan, um, and I always talked about the value proposition in and. It's not or, it's and. And I think that our, our approach to the investment community has been, we will deliver for you the market rate return that you are interested in um, at the margins uh, to keep the company healthy because we know that without those margins, we aren't actually capable of delivering the social and environmental benefits that we also hold ourselves accountable to. And when, I can, when you can craft a story that is financially sound uh, in terms of your pro forma that makes the or sort of the traditional mindset of finance actually feel comfortable and, and, and appropriately uh, um, uh, risk-managed, um, while at the same time being able to articulate that I am providing a, a deeply values-based product, and I want you to hold us accountable to those values. So we have metrics, for example, that are not just financially oriented. We have metrics that are asking us to hold, you know, hold and track to how are we doing on that economic development? Where, how many jobs are we creating locally? And where are they actually created? Are they living wage, right? And then we also look at you know, things like um, how are we sourcing our fish? And what percentage of our ingredients are coming from local farms? What percentage of those are organic? And we have metrics that we track ourselves and, and have set expectations with our investors that they will track ourselves. And they are actually contractually expressed within our agreements with those investors. And I think um, another great, you know, representation of that is we're, we're a, a B Corp, registered B Corp, um, which I don't know if your audience knows about benefit corporations and that legislation, um, but we are a registered B Corp, which means that our corporate articles have been adjusted to say that uh, we have a responsibility to um, think about stakeholders not just maximizing profit for shareholders. Um, and it's our job, and we believe it's an art, is to uh, figure out how to hold all of those objectives and play you know, the three-dimensional chess required to uh, do that and do that well. Um, and it's, uh, it's a constant tension, I tell you, um, within the firm, because it's not easy to do. I, I'm not here to tell you that you know, we're perfect in any way, shape, or form. Uh, we believe that this is an evolving conversation, and I think if anyone looked under our hood, they'd be pretty proud and excited about what they saw. But we also realize that 
um, these type of companies and the type of work that we're doing, which we believe the world needs more of, are, are in a process of evolution of how they manage the tension between conscience and commerce. Um, and in particular, to make sure that that and is what is developed as opposed to an or. Um, and then we just don't operate with an or mindset. And they go together, and if they don't, then we fail. Let's go back to what you had on the wall. Uh, I think that responsible entrepreneurs always have a set of principles that are overarching, uh, which you, your eyes gestured up to. But would you speak about those and, more importantly, how you use them so they aren't platitudes on a wall? Yeah. Um, so the wonderful thing about being a, a brand, right, is that those values become front and center to every piece of communication, interaction with a customer, a vendor, a supplier, right, a retailer, um, our employees, investors. Uh, it's part of who we are. <clears throat> and so um, in our office, and I don't know that I can, probably can't carry the Skype thing around, but, um, you know, our values are up. And we remind ourselves that when I looked at over there on the wall, there's a, you know, a big giant poster, poster board, a banner hanging that has, you know, six primary values that, are, that our customer finds most, um, uh, most valuable to them. And it reminds us always to deliver all of those things. So if we get too focused on price or too focused on convenience, we're also reminded that, hey, it's got to be local, it's got to be sustainable, it's got to be healthy to them. Um, and then uh, outside of customer values, I think that um, we have a brand statement, um, and that brand statement guides all of the, uh, uh, the relationships that we have external to the organization and all of our marketing communications and collateral. And, you know, I'm looking at a line right now from that brand statement. Um, and we also have around, you know, we have fish people are playful yet purposeful. You know, there's an element here where we think companies like ours, we don't want to be too serious. You know, we're having fun. This is a really good time. So energetically for us, it's all about how are we approaching this. And we want to be fun and we want to be sophisticated and serious, but we also really want to be fun, which is where playful yet purposeful comes. So we, we um, I think that we try to uh, um, bring that in into everything that we do. You look at the bottom of one of our pouches, and we have these little, uh, what we call fishisms, you know, and it's like, you know, stay in schools, for example, is on the bottom of one of our pouches on the inset. You know, we pay an extra penny or something like that to have that in there. But, you know, we, we, we kind of do fun stuff like that. I mean, the other thing I might add, um, a lot of that is what I just talked about is external uh, facing. I think internally, um, my, my co-founder and I, Believe deeply also in um, living those values internally in our internal culture. And the way we express those are trying to make sure that we are always understanding that we're not, quote unquote, dealing with employees. Nobody here has a job. People are people here. Um, they're humans and they bring their lives into the office every day. You know, it doesn't matter if they fought with their husband or their wife. It doesn't matter if, you know, um, they didn't sleep for a week and their back hurts. Um, it doesn't matter if they just went on vacation and they're feeling great. At the end of the day, their life and their energy of what's going on with them over the month, the week, the day is brought into this office. And we find that we want to be intentional about um, supporting 
where people are at and trying to work better with one another by being conscious of the emotional state that they're in when they're in the office. And so we have, um, have created a culture in which we, it's okay to kind of raise your hand and say, hey, you know what, like, this interaction isn't working for me right now. Can we try to recourse it? Or I'm really tired and I just need everyone to know that this week my new puppy has kept me up every night and I just can't focus. So if you see me, like, slacking off or in a meeting, it's not because I'm doing it intentionally. It's because I just had a really tough week last week and I didn't get any sleep and I'm still paying for it. So help me this week. And I think we create a culture where that is okay. Um, so much so that it's actually, uh, I'm looking, I wish you could see it. We have a, um, uh, a bell on our desk, Vietnamese bell on our desk, uh, in which you, we ring the bell before every meeting to have an intentional arrival to sort of make sure that the clutter that happened and always is surrounding you is, part while you come together to have a meeting that's focused, playful, and purposeful. So I think that's probably a good place to pause, at least for today. Tell people how they can find out more. Do you have a website you can give us? Um, so for my entrepreneur, like two weeks, the, the shell that I use is called Sea Dragon. Uh, so you can go to www.seadragonllc.com. And on there, you'll, you'll find out about a couple of the companies that I've helped start since, uh, since Equilibrium. Um, and a little bit more about my philosophy and what it's all about. Um, sea Dragon, the name comes from uh, your hippocampus is, uh, is shaped uh, like a seahorse. And it's actually named after... And then the hippocampus, hippo means sea and campus means monster, um, which is why they named the hippocampus in the brain after the seahorse. And they called it the great seahorse debate when they didn't know what it was. And your, uh, uh, your hippocampus is responsible for your autobiographical memory, which is where you have a sense of self and time in the stories that you tell yourself about your life. And for me, it's a primary, that part of your brain is primary in integrating your life narrative. If you don't have a, um, a healthy functioning hippocampus, which is what a lot of PTSD patients don't have, or if you, um, it's a, even if it's fully functioning, it's the part of your brain that you would want to leverage to help reorganize your stories. One of, there's many. But so since it's about integration, um, I felt that that was what I should call uh, all of my entrepreneurial activities because uh, I try to integrate in, in every company or project that I'm involved in. I'm trying to integrate human and natural systems, um, and that that is uh, so. You can go to Sea Dragon, and then you can find out about Fish People or any of the other projects that I'm working on. I hope you're as excited about what you heard from Kip as I was as I interviewed him. He's a quite extraordinary young man. If you'd like to know more, there are two ways you can find out about him and more about our other podcast. You can pick up a copy of The Responsible Entrepreneur, The Four Game-Changing Archetypes for Founders, Leaders, and Impact Investors. You can go to my website, carolsanford.com, and it'll give you options about ways you can get to it. It also lets you take a quiz to find out which of the four archetypes you tend to lean on the most and what it is you could do to extend more. Plus, you can learn more about KIPP and find out how to make connections to more of his work and to more of the work that we do here on the Responsible Entrepreneur Podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.